Uh, Morena Libby. Libby Kirby-McLeod is based in Hamilton. Kia ora. Hello, Catherine. So lovely to talk to you today. Yes, great to have you with us. Now, I know you're heading for a, a by-election, and not the only instance. This is happening in Wellington Central as well, where a councillor is off to Parliament. What's happening in Hamilton? Yes, just what everybody wants, right? Another election. <laughs> it's also happening down in Marlborough with um, Jamie Arbuckle, who I'll talk about in a minute. But for us here in East Hamilton, it's local councillor Ryan Hamilton, who is leaving to become an MP. Now, he's a new national MP. He'll be leaving the city council after five years as a councillor. Now, one thing that is quite unique about him is that he first won his council seat through a by-election when another councillor died five years ago. So I think there's a little bit of poetry in the fact that he's also leaving through a by-election, and you would think it would be a pretty unique situation. Now, when I talked to Ryan Hamilton, he said that he did wonder whether Hamilton City really needed to have a by-election to fill his seat. Uh, Well, what's he suggesting instead? Well, he said that with a full council, and this is, you know, counting the mayor and also the the Maori ward councillors, there'll be 15 people representing Hamilton. And he thought that there might be ample representation for the next little while. Now, I can hear outraged cries of democracy. uh, But, you know, the voter turnout for the last full Hamilton City Council election was only 29 0.4%. So it's a little bit arguable about really whether people care about, you know, whether that seat is filled. One person I spoke to on the street said he was just exhausted by it all after coming out of the national election. And another told me that they were just over it. So what do others think about the proposal of just basically leaving it vacant and carrying on? Well, I asked around, and it was interesting because that idea didn't come back up from anybody else. But Jamie Arbuckle, who, as I said, is also um, now becoming a new New Zealand First MP, but is on the Marlborough Council, he doesn't really want a by-election either. He said that they can cost up to $70,000 each, and that cost has to be borne by the council. So he's planning to just try and do both jobs until he can resign at a point which won't trigger a by-election. But he also said to me that he's planning to use his time in Parliament to put forward a members bill that would allow the next highest candidate from the last election to be offered the job. So there's clearly this kind of mood that if council by-elections can be avoided, it would be best. I spoke to the vice president of local government New Zealand, who's also a mayor, and he thinks that perhaps a four-year term, so again, another kind of law change or change to the situation would help. But really, it doesn't matter what all of these people think, a by-election is happening and nominations for Ryan Hamilton's seat on council will open at the end of this month with voting happening in January. All right. Now, emergency departments around the country are under so much pressure. And just explain a little bit more about what's been happening at Waikato, specifically with ambulance staff. Yes, it was quite alarming at the end of July when St John said that they'd recorded their highest ever ramping hours at the Waikato Hospital. Now, ramping is such a bureaucratic word, but basically it just means that an ambulance rushes up to the hospital with a patient on board, but that that patient can't be admitted to hospital. Now, if it takes more than 30 minutes for the person to leave the ambulance and be seen by the hospital, then that's considered ramping. Now, at its worst at that July incident, 12 ambulances were stacked up waiting, you know, to get get back on the road to have their people taken care of. And it became so bad that St John's actually declared a major incident for the Waikato because, of course, they couldn't get those ambulances back to respond to people who were ringing 111 needing assistance. 
because of that, the hospital and St. John's have got together. And one idea that they've come up with and implemented is to have a St. John's staff member on site at the hospital in the emergency room every weekday. Apparently Mondays are like a really busy day for ambulances coming into the hospital there. And to see whether that will help things. And is it going to be tried? So it's it's happening already. Um, apparently the staff member supports ambulance staff as they arrive. They monitor what's happening. They work with hospital staff too to see if anybody in those people in the ambulances, again, can do this lovely bureaucratic term called fit to sit, which basically just means whether they can be taken out of the ambulance and sit in the waiting room, um, and, you know, and then the ambulance can go back onto the street. Now, St. John's did tell me they are seeing a downward trend now in ambulance wait times at the hospital. So that's a good thing. However, data that was provided to me for one particular week, the 8th to the 16th of October, shows that the average wait time was still 46 minutes and that ramping, so again, remember ramping is when a hosp- when an ambulance has to wait for more than 30 minutes for their patient to be seen, still occurred every single day in that time period. So I would say it's still a work in progress. Yeah. Now, what is happening with uh, action at the Firth of Thames communities? Of course, it's such a beautiful, beautiful geographic and um, physical structure, but it is very low-lying, and it's the people who uh, are facing a real challenge here. What's What's proposed to try and prevent catastrophic flooding? It is such a lovely part of the country. Now, the Firth of Thames, the Waikato part of it, is obviously on the mainland part. So they look out onto the Coromandel Peninsula. Um, Now, they've had severe flooding. So over the last 60 years, Waikato Regional Council told me, over the last 60 years, there have been approximately 20 major flooding events on that piece, piece of the coast. Now, the worst one, or the latest one, I should say, was 2018, when homes were flooded by this kind of double whammy where the rain was pouring down the hills as rivers, you know, overflowed behind them, so pouring into their backyards, and then the waves were crashing up onto their front yards. Now, after that, the communities basically knew that they couldn't carry on the way they were. And so they began this process, which the Ministry for Educate for sorry Ministry for the Environment uh, recommended in their Coastal Hazards and Climate Change Guidance, which was to be community led, coming up with solutions. So, what uh, what exactly are the solutions proposed? And, and first, who who was involved? Who in the community was involved in formulating them? So I talked to a lady called Gay Rawiri, who is a lovely local, and she was the chair, and her husband, uh, who is an iwi representative, and they were both involved. So it was very much people in the community. Now, the reason they got involved is in the, 18, uh, sorry, the 2018 flood, uh, they were stuck at their house for two days. They couldn't get down onto the road because the road was so full of debris and blocked. Um, and so when they did get down, they went straight into the village, picked a house, started cleaning it up. So they're obviously really community-minded, but also very aware of the consequences. So it took several years from my understanding. It wasn't necessarily the most easy process, uh, but they came up with a report of 100 recommendations to be implemented over the next 100 years. Um, they include things like simple things like drain maintenance, making sure that if someone comes and wants to be a resident of the town that they're aware of the hazards of the property they're going to buy, to, I guess, more expensive things like floodgates. And they also address this idea that they are very low-lying and if the sea levels rise, you know, they're already getting king tides covering roads and properties. So if that sea level is going to go up, it's just going to get worse and there may be a need to resettle people. And they had an idea that they would like, you know, we're in the situation at the moment where 
a disaster happens, people's houses get destroyed, and then we have to work out what to do with them. They say, let's front foot that. Let's look at those properties we know are at risk. Could the council buy them, lease them back to the people that are living there, that love to live there? But then when that property needs to be um, moved from or when an event happens that does destroy that property, the people who live there, their lives are not going to be destroyed. They're not going to be on the hook for the property. Really interesting set of uh, set of recommendations. What happens from here, though? Well, it's in the hands of the council to decide what to do and how to pay for it. And this is a bit complicated because there are three councils that cover this area. Uh, Waikato District Council, Waikato Regional Council and Hauraki District Council. And I spoke to the Mayor of... Um, Hauraki District Council, Toby Adams. He said the process of working with the community was really fantastic. And in fact, all of the council people that I spoke to said they would really recommend it. Um, and in fact, I think that the regional council is doing it now with other communities. Um, but of course, it's a 100-year plan. Any new council that could come in could overturn it. Um, it goes beyond the staff that are working on it now, the council and elected people that are working on it now, and also, the, of course, the community that are there now. The mayor did say that there does seem to be some change in approach from the government since Cyclone Gabriel and that maybe the government has indicated that property buyout dollars might be available if they're matched by local government and property owners. But the big question really is, how is it going to be paid for? Yeah, as always. Now, finally, there's an app to get people out and about enjoying Hamilton's nature Nature uh, areas. Yeah, I was trying to come up with a word. Nature highlights. They actually, um, so I didn't know this, but we have a real gully system. So these are, I guess, sort of um, streams and things that feed into the Waikato River and they have these these steep gullies that edge them. Um, but there's some really beautiful nature areas and they the council wants to return a lot of these to native vegetation. So a way to get people down into the gullies, enjoying the gullies, and therefore caring about the gullies and maybe getting involved in protecting and planting um, is this new Nature in the City app. So in the interest of journalist thoroughness, I've even downloaded the app. Do you want Do you want a little sneak peek? You've got one minute to tell me some of the highlights. Okay, well, I'm going to go to Sanford Park. It's going to tell me where to park my car. Always very useful. It's going to give me a bit of history. It tells me the highlights of the walk. I can see a mini wetland, apparently, and a native tree, native trees. Look, they must have taken their inspiration from us. It's got audio of various bird calls. <laughs> uh, it even tells me why the water I see might be brown. Do you want to take a guess why? I don't think I want to. <laughs> Apparently it's natural because of the peatlands in Hamilton. So there we go. So you've just got this, all this information and you just pick a second place and the same sort of detail will be yeah, there. Yeah, it's got a map. It's fan- It's Yeah, it gives me the highlights, the hotspots. It looks really good. You'll be the second you clock out, Libby. You'll be out there again. Thank you very it- much, Libby. Yeah. Kirkby McLeod, RNZ. Reporter based in Hamilton.